Night, Angel. Night. Night. Every night you put Cyan to sleep and then you go back to the agency. Are you going to tell me what's going on? I want to keep you safe, baby. Unless you know about I don't what understand I do, this cloak and dagger stuff. You're a desk jockey, a nice, safe job. I like knowing I won't get a phone call in the night saying you're missing or dead. I think I found something that they didn't want me to find. Sometimes there's an agency inside the agency keeping a lot of secrets, but I'll get it all straightened out. I gotta go. Be careful. I forgot something. I love you. I love you too. I'll always come home to you. Hey, don't worry. <laughs> the following is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. Welcome to Spawnometer number 24. Hey, Mr. Fix-It, what do you think of the cover? Very basic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely it's, stripped it's, down. This looks like something he would have done at a convention. I like the whole being inside a circle of chains aspect. I like that it's sunny in the background, which is something different that we don't usually see from Spawn. It's almost like we're seeing McFarlane go off into the sunset, so this is going to be the last issue that he draws. He contributes to art later issues, but he, this is the last one where he's going to do full writing pencils and inks. So I think it's iconic, but it's also simple. If Spawn had had a history of really detailed covers and this was one design choice I'd be more like yeah good job but because so many of them take shortcuts anyway this one doesn't get the same benefit of the doubt but I, I do like it I, and I do think it stands apart from a lot of other spawn covers through the simplicity and the brightness okay that's I mean it's definitely different so this is the final chapter of the hunt part four is released on September the 12th 1994 this is the last of a four consecutive issue streak of almost monthly issues between spawns number 18 and 19 I mean the release of 18, then four issues, and then 19. The same month, DC titles resumed their continuous numbering as the last zero issues were released. At Valiant, the Chaos Effect crossover received an epilogue. At Dark Horse, John Byrne's Next Men was about to wrap up its less than three-year run. It's a shame it didn't come out through Image. This is The Hunt Part 4. It's dedicated to Joe Sinnott. Do you know who that is? No. Famous inker. He inked a lot of Kirby stuff back in the Silver Age. Real okay. smooth line, but also, I, I just recently I was reading on Twitter where there are people that don't like Sinnott because Sinnott was for Marvel what somebody like a Murphy Anderson I guess was for DC where it gave everything a uniformity that maybe feels a little stifling so not a favorite with everybody but definitely one of the better regarded and more famous inkers in comics history okay this is the second of two issues where special thanks are given to Greg Capullo and I did get a sense of maybe McFarlane getting a little bit of help because there were some Capulloisms in the last two issues which helps the transition to Capullo being the full artist on the book <laughs> Ugh. <sighs> 
there it is. Holy shit. These are the numbers. The numbers match. Jesus. When? He's a traitor. When I catch this little jackrabbit, I'm gonna skin him. Don't underestimate this guy. He's a boy scout. He doesn't know what he's going to do next. I'm just doing my job, goddammit. Why are they doing this to me? So in this one, we find Twitch and Burke over the bodies of Terry and Spawn. They're trying to figure out how to revive him. It looks like Twitch decides that he's going to give Spawn mouth to mouth. He removes the mask, at which point they see how burnt up Spawn's face is. They both react to it as you would if you saw a man whose face was completely burned off with a shoelace holding it together. They start putting it together like, okay, what do we know about this guy? They remember the, the little homeless lady calling him Al, at which part Terry hears Al, looks over, sees this burnt body with a shoelace holding it together. I figured, what, Spawn doesn't have a heart be right since he's a corpse we've got the blood strike stuff coming up and i was thinking about what would it really mean to be resurrected and be an active agent i couldn't find anything really that useful to be honest with you because mm. if you're if you don't have basic metabolic processes there really isn't any scientific basis for you continuing to function so whether or not spawn has a heartbeat he's a supernatural being so it could go either way but he wouldn't even have a body temperature then right he'd be the temperature of the room but see nobody ever talks about how cold he is yeah me personally i've always assumed the protoplasm that comes from the plant that's actually spawn that this corpse body is just somewhere for that um to kind of a vessel yeah like a vessel basically it's not really him it's not his real body it's not his teeth it's not his eyes it's basically a corpse that this plasm like a ghost has entered so it wouldn't have a temperature it wouldn't have a heartbeat it's just this plasm holding this body together and it pretends to be a human in this meat sack and so that's the way i've always seen spawn i don't really see that as that's really al's face it's just a meat sack that he's in i've never seen it as like a living breathing creature he doesn't have lungs there's no purpose for him mm-hmm. well that and they, we've seen him get ripped to pieces and yeah. so he has a hole in him at but, one the, point. but the problem with the theory is that how do you beat the shit out of a guy who doesn't have any physical connection to the body because mentally he probably still thinks that he can get but it wouldn't hurt but if he thinks that it hurts it hurts see what i mean like basically got psyched out by overkill rather than beat the yeah. fuck up if he believes it's happening to him it happens to him because he doesn't really have a physical form you could smash his head in and the protoplasm is just going to put the meat back together but if he believes he's getting hit he feels the hit his psyche feeds into it it's like punching a bag of meat he wouldn't feel it and he can fuck you up but because he has that aspect of humanity in the back of his mind where if you punch him he's like ow that would hurt no it wouldn't you're a fucking protoplasm in a meat bag like you you don't have nerve ending you don't feel anything you don't have a fucking brain so i always thought that was really interesting about him i stopped reading a while back so i don't know if they ever played with that where it's all in his head like what he feels pain i mean let's be honest most of the books we've read is just him brooding poor me my life sucks i did so that whole part of of his humanity he's gonna feel pain he's gonna feel sadness where i believe the whole idea of the spawns is there are these perfect killing machines from hell that's that humanity part of them that holds him back because i just finished rereading medium spawn just for fun that's what got to me is like he still saw himself as this valiant knight you're not mm-hmm. so that's the one weakness in Malbolja's creation of these troopers is their humanity will always give them a flaw where they shouldn't have a fall they should be like terminators they sh- moving forward they have all this knowledge of war 
gore that they can use, but they have this humanity in them that, oh, that hurt. He shot me. Oh, that hurt. Oh, he cut me. The perfect example is when he's running away and Twitch shut, shoots him in the leg. He doesn't respond because he didn't see it. Mm. So he didn't acknowledge it. Yeah. So. I think the real proof is when his heart gets ripped out in the fourth issue, nobody can last for any length of time without a heart. So if he doesn't have a heart, then how does he have blood moving around through his body? It yeah. just starts to come apart there. I do wonder if maybe the necromantic energy gives him a body heat of some kind. But yeah, that, this is definitely a rabbit hole. When I see that protoplasm, I think of Slimer from the Ghostbuster cartoon. <laughs> that's, that's what Al really looks like when he's the, floating around. The teeth don't he's help either. <laughs> if I put my hand through a wall, it hurts. You put your hand through a wall, there's nothing because it's plasm. You're, you'd literally go through the wall, grab. So I just always find that strange. So I'm looking at the panel where Terry's looking at Al saying Al and his mouth is open. And I'm picturing Terry shoving hot dogs in that mouth. The potential for these characters is really up there, but I just don't understand. I'm trying to think of the perfect example of a movie where you see them punching the villain and the villain doesn't really respond. They just keep looking at you. And then he catches a hand and he like snaps their arm. Mm-hmm. That's how I would picture Spawn is. Where Overkill would have been punching him and he would have caught his hand and just like bent it over. Mm-hmm. Maybe he can change the density of his body. So he goes from being like fleshy to like you're punching, you know, some uh, super dense material where you couldn't. I don't know. So but That's something I've struggled with too is this isn't Al's body. They stuck him into this white dude's body that's all fucked up. I don't understand why he doesn't heal himself or maintain healing himself. Why doesn't he just possess another body or why doesn't he transfigure himself into a different form? There's a lot of stuff about Spawn that doesn't make a lot of sense. Spawn would benefit from an Alan Moore or Grant Morrison type doing it for a year or so just to kind of work out some of that shit and play with some of the possibilities and fully reveal what this character has in him potentially. So Terry's trying to get out of there because he's still worried about Wanda and his Saya. They're like, no, you're not going anywhere because you're wanted by the police. You're wanted by the CIA. You're wanted by the FBI. You're wanted by the... But he's wanted by everybody. he got nowhere to go. He's Well, fucked. actually, this is the thing, though. Okay, number one, Sam Burke really fucking manhandles Terry and he's already clearly fucked up and he's got like a bullet hole in his shoulder and shit looks like or at least bullet holes through the clothing and shit. It's fucked up that Sam's treating him like that when he's already in the shape that he's in. Yeah. Um, the second thing is Sam doesn't know jack shit about Terry Fitzgerald. He's not there for any of the shit that Terry's into. He's there looking for Spawn. When he calls in, he doesn't know what kind of hell he's bringing down on this dude. But you're right, all those people are going to be coming for him now, including a bunch of corrupt cops that are looking forward to pull this guy out from under Sam and Twitch. Yeah, you got nowhere to go. Over the radio, they've said where he's at. And so everyone is converging to that area. Jason Wynn tells his men to get there. Don't lose them again. Tony Twist says, you know, get out there. Take care of this. At this time, Wanda's sitting there crying, holding her daughter. Realizing that, being you know, blown apart. Yeah. Yeah, that they're screwed. Like, you know, what are, what's going to happen? They're, everybody's turned their backs on them. Their friends have turned their backs on them. FBI's guarding at the door. They're just trapped. Burke is trying to question Terry. Terry's knocked out. Just wants to get to his wife and his kid. At this point, we look over and we see Spawn. They think he's dead because he looks like a corpse. And a couple of, uh, of Spawn's homeless friends are there and they're trying to get to him to rescue Spawn. Because, again, he is their king in a sense, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they, if nothing else, he's their buddy. But, yeah, they, they want to help no, him No, they out. refer to him as their king. Do they? Yeah, I think like his kingdom. Like they almost see themselves as independent of the city. Mm, okay. I think there might have been like a capture or something. Like it might be McFarlane giving a little flourish or something. Twitch and Burke are talking to Terry. Terry's talking about how he has no time. He needs to get away and he starts running off. They're about to chase him. Thankfully, they didn't eat Kai Pim like they did Spawn. Yeah, true. They didn't shoot him. Yeah, that's true. Which is kind of crazy. I mean, an officer firing on an unarmed person as they run away. Both times. Um, yeah. And so Spawn is waking up a little bit. He's coming to. Tony is there talking about, I want you to make sure Overt Kill did the job. I need Fitzgerald dead. The cartel. Because he gets a phone call from the rest of the cartel and they threaten him in a way. Tony Twist does this fucked up thing where he's like, I want you to go to his favorite restaurant and get his top chef and cut off his hand because they don't know 
who's in charge. So it's almost like all these alphas are fighting amongst this council of mobsters. They all own Overkill because they're all putting pumping money into him and they're letting him use them. But every time Tony uses Overkill, either he gets destroyed or he gets fucked up some way. The police are rushing down there. Everyone's rushing to the alleyway where Overkill was beating the shit out of Spawn. Even the news crews are showing up. So now this is becoming even a bigger deal. At which point, Terry's running through the, the alleyways just trying to escape and Burke and Twitch catch him. Twitch puts the, you know, his big Mostly old three Twitch. seven to his head. Huh? Twitch, Twitch basically outflanks him. If it yeah. wasn't for Twitch, he'd have probably gotten away because Sam was not catching up with the motherfucker. Twitch knew what to do and got the drop on him and he just breaks down realizing that almost certainly his wife and child are dead under the circumstances in which he arrived at the alley, whether or not they were true or not. The homeless people of that alleyway start throwing trash at Burke and Twitch. They're throwing bottles, they're throwing cans to where they have to retreat and this gives Terry time to run away. But as Terry's trying to get away, is it the CIA that's going to run him over? No, or? it's uh, they make a point in this issue of doing the whole Vito Gravano thing and uh, they do mention too that he's still recovering from the shit that happened in the Violator miniseries and then that he fucks okay. up and he misses one panel where it says that it's twist goons that are driving the car that's going to run down Terry. So okay. he, he's still twisting the comic book. They just missed it. So the car's coming at Terry like a deer in headlights. Bond's capes can be seen from the outer panels a little bit. He lands right in front. He tells Terry to get down. The car slams into Spawn and is described as if they ran into a steel pole. The engine is pushed up into the passenger seat, crushes their legs. These guys are dead. Or at least disabled for the rest of their lives. I like, too, that they were driving. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of say they'll never walk again. The image that Todd drew, it looks like the engine is sitting on top of the driver. Right. Like, I like that they were no driving at 67 miles per hour. So you have to figure he probably rounded up from six, 66.6 miles per hour and got 67 miles per hour. I think that was an intentional thing on his part. A little nod to the satanic aspect of the character. Oh, okay. And so Spawn now decides that no one is going to back off. He's tried to deal with it one way, and the only way he can think of now is through fear. He does mention how the Violator gave him a name, and so now they're going to all know his name. And I guess he does like this green flames where he says these alleys belong to Spawn, and, and that now he's going to be seen as like a boogeyman in the alleyways. He does his crow moment instead of doing yeah, the crow yeah, 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 yeah. That's definitely a crow. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, it is a crow moment. Burns a crow to the ground. Yeah. At this point, this part I thought was lame, where he starts showing up to everybody's offices with the folders with this information that's going to shut them down and draw away their power. So at first he shows up to Jason Wynn's office. He tells him to shut up and he throws a folder on his desk and he tells him how this folder possesses all this information that if it gets to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, his power will disappear in a heartbeat. And Jason Wynn starts reading and he's freaking out because he's like, no one could know about this information unless they were there. And it's freaking him out. And then he shows up to Burke and tells Burke, you're going to tell the police chief to back off Terry. Of course, this is all on Terry's behalf. He's getting everybody off Terry's back. So it's a quick, clean, here's a folder on your police chief banks. Yeah. And this is, is to this get the him first off. time we've ever had any mention of them having a police chief? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. I want to say they did mention he stole some files. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember he, back, he stole these but... files from the accountant, but it shouldn't cover all this shit necessarily. Oh, especially no, it, it, nothing it, with wins specifically. Yeah. Every major character in the Spawn universe. He has files. I'm sure there's one on Overt Kill, Savage Dragon, <laughs> Young Blood. Right. I'm sure he got Trump's taxes. He can't just bust up on Sam Burke at any time. It's got to be at 4.33 in the morning, and the guy's got to be raiding his fridge looking for sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, pickled herrings. Does Sam Burke have a personality besides eats constantly? Is that like oh, his no, entire... It's an eating disorder, man. He, yeah. eats what he, he eats his feelings. I know his pain. <laughs> and, but he you know, he throws down this file on banks and how uh, this will back your cheese. These are tropes that I really fucking hate, yep. where it's a folder that just ties up all the new sins. There's no real way to end it. And of course, he shows up to Tony Twist in the sauna, which I 
thought this was going to be a scene from With, Eastern Promise. Yeah. We got these sweaty men wrestling and beating the sh- Yeah, I just, that's a fucking badass movie. I just thought I'd throw it in there. But when I saw this sauna, and of course, there's another fucking folder that talks about all these plans he got in the future, which I thought was really weird because he's like, I'll give this to the police and they'll know your plans for the next six months. And I'm like, so why don't you just change the plans? Like, right, okay, if I go, right. if I was going to go left, I'm going to go right now. Even the part where he tells Burke, if a criminal goes left, I'm going to make sure y'all go right. You're going to help out criminals. It just felt really fucking weird. And then Terry's in there. Well, what gets me too is like Spawn's like all, hey, fat man, let's chat. And, and that's when it really hit me. Every single person Spawn has got a major beef with is overweight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> What the yeah. fuck? What kind of fat shaming motherfucker is Al could Simmons? Be overweight. Yeah. Yeah. Tony Twist is overweight. Burke is overweight. Jason Wynn, he's at a comfortable weight. Not overweight. We've seen him <laughs> naked as Redeemer. He's got some pounds on him. Yeah. What I kind of fat shaming I mean, shit's Todd McFarlane got? He hates skinny people. Look, the violator, dude. Mm-hmm. The violator is no, extremely thin. He, he's only potent when he's the violator, when he's all tall and skinny. When he's a little fat clown, he's something Oh, that's impotent. true. He's weak and. Oh, yeah, that's true. Huh. Working out some fucking psychology. has a thing against fat people. Seems like wow I never, terry and and uh, wanda they're all great looking they're all fit and spawn feels the need to protect them but all the fatties are trying to get to him hey kincaid was a fat ice cream guy mm-hmm. yeah holy shit i think we just cracked the code a lot of the fat homeless guys get killed too this needs to be trending now todd hates fat people fucking insidious man shit <laughs> wow i will never pick up a spawn comic again now i'm offended <laughs> well i'm gonna need you to pick up some more spawn comics about uh, oh, 300 God. more if you will mind so we get back and all of a sudden terry gets this magical phone call that says hey terry don't worry all that shit is gone. The mob is not after you anymore. The CIA is not after you anymore. CIA, <laughs> FBI, mafia, fucking media, everybody. It's just like, everybody's gonna leave you, you alone. And he's just like, I wonder what happened. Dude's name is Terry McMulligan over here. And then of course there's Spawn in a tree, creepy, lurking. These are the endings I hate, where it's a folder that fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that, like, you, didn't calls earn, it, you didn't earn that ending. No. Well, and also you got like a homeless guy in the alley who's covering himself in the rain I put, with top secret files, and he talks about how he's bluffed works like why would that be a bluff you have the information that's not a bluff he worked toward the ending he wanted to do the whole oh henry Croix, you're treating the files like he treated the weapons you fucking lost so once again al simmons is the fucking sharpest knife in the rack over here he's just leaving the files lying around fucking spawn alley to be used as rain cover it's such a pussy ass wimp ass let's go right back to where we started at the beginning of the arc ending so frustrating for them to have done so much work to build up the story and they just fucking absolute wet fart of an ending oh yeah oh absolutely they shit the bed on that one as soon as we got to the part with the folders, I was tuned out. I'm like totally turned off by that. Yeah, but again, yeah. that's one of those things where I don't think they had an ending planned. Um, I don't uh, think they had an exit strategy on this one. No, no. And and what kills me, though, is McFarlane shows that he's gotten better as a writer because of that building momentum that he had over the course of the story arc. And it could have really gone somewhere. But A, they get rid of overkill in the penultimate chapter. So that's one threat that you don't have to worry about anymore. And B, they decided they were going to end the show with like suits on USA. I didn't like the way they knocked out overkill. It was like, oh, well, he shot him in the ear. Yeah. I'm like, that makes no fucking sense. What? I guess he's had what? a year before. I should have known they were going to shit the bed when Overkill was reprogrammed through a bullet through his ear hole. Like, I, that stretch of, yeah. that stretch should have let, gave me a heads up like, oh, you think that's bad? Wait till we get to the folders. Well, what about the spawn of steel too? He just shows up and becomes a rod and that's the end of the threats essentially. But then I, but then I tell you, he felt no pain, right? Yeah. And, and, and you said he altered his density. Well, why didn't he alter his density on Overkill? Let him get one punch I, like that where he smashed his you, fist. When I was reading 
reading that, when I saw that, I'm like, why isn't he doing this like when he was getting in a fight? Yeah. Like well, when Overkill was punching him, he should have been like, I'm a steel pole now. Boom. And Overkill's like punching a pole and nothing's happening to him. Well, that's also where None you need to have the sense. spawnometer and you need to show the fucking dial going down so you see what that cost him. But yeah. they don't have a spawnometer again. So it's like, motherfuckers, that's part of the premise of your fucking deal is if he uses his power, he loses power. So you got to show the power getting eked out of him. You know, if he's going to have a display like that, you got to show what it cost him. Yeah. Ah, oh, well. It, 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 oh, this it, was it, a good episode, man. It had a lot of promise and then the fucking arc just like died out. But yeah, it was yeah. a good episode. You did great. Thank you, man. rated because it's called blood strike you can go heavier you, the, the tone can change so you know those are discussions to have they're ongoing something like brigade a, a guy who was part of a system breaks off finances his own kind of rebel vigilante group there's some wiggle room there and there's family qualities and that the the guy who leads brigade and the guy that leads blood strike are brothers who hate each other if i woke you from a deathly slumber Without your cooperation, I mean, without your consent, you might be pissed at me for the rest of your life too. Um, you know, and I, 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 you know, I told them it's the it's the Cain and Abel of comics. John Stone and Cabot Stone hate each other. There's exploration there that, again, we're, we're not in a Marvel or DC film, so it's not like, hey, everybody, buy my superhero clubhouse because right. honestly, that's not an easy sell. You, you it's can't not an easy go hey it's with with unfamiliar characters and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, what are you guys' favorite story arcs for comics? Favorite story arcs? That we did or that we've been read? That you did. Okay. Uh, for me, it's uh, early on in my career. Uh, there was another book that was called uh, Blood Strike, and we did a story called Blood Brothers, and that was pretty awesome because it was the whole early June days were amazing because literally Rob would go, just, uh, Here's kind of something I want in the book and go draw something cool. And then I would like bring in layouts and I'd go, yes, yes, take that out, yes, yes. And come back and finish pages and, and I'll tell you those are good. And uh, so it was awesome. Blood Brothers was uh, great, it was fun. It was the greatest part about being uh, at Extreme, and you can see it in all those early image books, just the passion and energy on the pages. Everybody loved what we were doing. There wasn't a lot of um, overwhelming editorial. It was just a bunch of guys doing exactly what they wanted to do, and that's do cool comics, and only doing it for the fans. That was the coolest part, it was for the people, and the people reacted, and they loved it, and they told it to us in letters, and at conventions, at every store appearance, it was just amazing time. So if you don't have those, go find them, they're probably in the port of now, so they're cheap, and they're good for you. Yeah. This is huh? the main premise of Bloodstrike. What is Project Born Again? You have to be born with a special gene, and they can bring you back over and over and over yeah. again. It's called the new gene, and it's new Extreme gene. Studios' version of the X gene, the mutant gene from Marvel. You have to have the new gene, which is, again, you have to basically be a latent mutant, because most of the time, when they put you in the Project Born Again, you don't have any signs of having the new gene. You seem like a normal person, you know, or, or average person, I guess we should say. I don't want to be prejudiced against new gene active people. 
people or my own homo sapiens, but generally it's people who have not manifested powers but do have the latent gene. And once they've determined that you have the new gene, then they're able to use that in the Project Born Again process to resurrect you from the dead and use you as part of their covert black ops squad. And you typically will develop your powers, your new gene powers will manifest after you're reanimated. Yes. So they're the covert covert. The Bloodstrike team is Cabot, Shogun, Tag, and Foreplay. And they first appear in a pinup in October 1992's Youngblood number three. Now there's an additional member that's added once the series got started, Deadlock, who is a Wolverine wannabe. He also debuted in Youngblood number one, but he was half the villainous team, the four. He was, the, he was there you go. Yeah. The so he was four. in the half that were in lockup, who were getting sprung by the other half before everybody got captured by the home team, although we didn't get to see that because that's the infamous story that ends with a double page spread of the team just going into an attack without actually seeing how it's resolved. The premise of Cabot and Battlestone being Blood Brothers, complete with their Blood Brothers logo, came out a few weeks later in a Dan Fraga, Danny Meeky pinup that was seen in Brigade Number 2. So that established, okay, these guys are brothers, and we know the Bloodstrike team is out there, and they're about to have their own series. So Bloodstrike's first in-story appearance was in the first issue of their eponymous series, which was released on May the 4th, 1993, per Mike's Amazing World of Comics. It featured the Derigor gimmick cover, a thermal, unreactive gray-tone image with pink stains all over it that encouraged the reader to, quote, rub the blood. Do you remember that shit? I think so vaguely. Did you ever get that shit to work? No. That shit never worked for fucking anybody. I had copies of this one in my shop's cheapy bin, and nothing about this fucking thing made me want to rub one off. Uh, <laughs> they released a remastered version of the issue for an anniversary a few years ago that was mostly just recolored to make up for the stupidity of the non-functioning stunt. Now, you read the remastered version of Bloodstrike number one, right? Yes. I can tell you, aside from the differences in the coloring, it really didn't make much of a difference. The original coloring was actually pretty damn good. It just wasn't printed on as good of a paper, so I don't know why they bothered to remaster it. We'll address number one in a second. I want to explore the members. And since we already talked a hell of a lot about Deadlock, uh, let's talk a little bit about Shogun. What can you tell me about that character? I guess you could say he's an Iron Man, where you have a mech suit that looks like a Shogun warrior. He's supposed to be you Japanese, know, right? I believe so, yes. I mean, Shogun, you know, Shoguns are Japanese. He's the guns. He's also the transport. Yeah, it's funny. He's got like a couple or three little hooks on his back where people can sort of ride him as he uses his boot jets to rocket out of the location. Now, real quick, since you know a little bit, okay, so what is it called? The new gene? Yeah. In the image world? Okay, so you can have the new gene and not have powers? I think so. I think that you just have okay. that be new gene positive. If I were to guess, Shogun seems like a forge type to me. Got super technical tech, skills. Tech yeah, so to, to allow him to build this gigantic war machine with all the Gatling guns and everything else. But also, is it just me or is it infer that he has almost like a romantic relationship with his armor? Well, no, no, no. He speaks to his armor. I think he's like a, was it those tech telepath? Or I think okay. he actually talks to his armor. Okay, that makes sense. I can, um, I can see that, sure. Almost like the little Japanese girl from uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. Did you ever see that one? Yes. Okay, you know how she talks to the armor? The yep. armor has a personality of mm-hmm. its own, but she can interact with it. I, that's the vibe I got from it. I don't think they ever discussed him talking to other technologies, but I think maybe he has like a psychic link with the armor. Yeah, I think he just had a level of intimacy with his suit that was unhealthy. Dude, they're all unhealthy. They all true, have very true, unhealthy given, given. fucking... Coming huh? into the book, I don't tend to like... It, it seems like this weird, goofy thing that's supposed to be in manga, and it's like intruding into the superhero universe when you have it. But the more I read Bloodstrike, the more I appreciate how gonzo it was from the just have this gigantic mech in the midst of the team. And I ended up liking him more and more as the series progressed. Just because of his presence, the team functions differently than a team normally would, especially when they're hanging off of him and flying and shit. I just thought well, that he has that. a different view of the rebirth program than the rest of them do, which uh, I like. Yeah. 
I'm not so sure. He no, didn't, he didn't no, like yeah, it either. He, he, he wasn't happy. He didn't yeah. like it. I don't, I don't most want to of them jump ahead because you're making me jump ahead. Okay. He's the one that this feels like a violation where the rest of them are just, except for Cobalt, the rest of them are kind of like, nah, it's norm to be murdered and to break, be brought back. I think from him, the perspective we're supposed to get is what it does to the mind. He seems more freaked out by it where everybody else is just the norm. They well, don't see themselves as being slaughtered and coming back like a big deal. One of the things they point out is that with the exception of Deadlock and Cabot, all the other members went into the project knowing what it was, that they would be killed and reanimated and gain abilities and all this kind of stuff. So they all signed on for this, like they were joining the military or something. And what he says is that, yes, he did sign the contract. Yes, he knew what he was getting into. But having been resurrected multiple times and experienced the trauma of that over and over again and experiencing what that does to his psyche and his emotions and everything else, he now regrets that process and you know, yeah. like to, to be done with it. And again, I think that's what shows the path that a lot of those other characters are taking in their own dark ways, which is cool. They're all dealing with it in their own ways, but I don't know. I, again, I don't see how this book is not on the shelves right now. There's yeah, well, such I mean, potential there. Given Rob Liefeld and Extremes' reputation of just being nothing but meathead fight fests, there's a real psychological depth to a lot of the stories in this book that demand to be explored. I can totally see why, like you, Michelle Fife could not let this shit go because yeah. you really want to, and again, a lot of parallels to Suicide Squad, but in some ways much darker and deeper than Suicide Squad. Definitely in the same territory, though, where you're dealing with the psychology of how somebody can be a part of a group of people that expects to die. Or mission after mission expects that they're not going to come back from that next mission. Who you have to be and how you have to be put together to enter into that scenario. Well, I, mean, I mean, how much of their soul is lost every time they come back? That one piece that makes them human, like how much is that lost every time they come back? I always think of Rajan Ghul whenever he's dipped into the Lazarus pit. Well, and, and that's a, he'll actually, come back, he's, he's a little bit of a savage for about 20 minutes and then he'll calm down and then he's back to detective that i always thought was a cool ideas as they come back what does it do to their mind they don't really explain when they go through project rebirth if they're regenerating parts kind of explain some of it which i don't want to jump ahead too oh, far yeah, that. They, they do explain that we'll have to address that in the near future yeah but that's fucked up and again i thought about vandal savage too at that point mm -hmm. like there's characters out there that they deal with this but not in the way that Bloodstrike does because image gets so much shit for being derivative but they were dealing with stuff like what ended up being done with Vandal Savage going into the late 90s before DC did it. So this is an instance where Image was actually somewhat of a trailblazer in dealing with these scenarios over what other companies ended up doing along similar path. Yes. And Cabot is Battlestone's brother. Battlestone is, of course, the guy who helped co-found the Youngblood team, was a member of Operation Nightstrike, and would go on to form the Brigade team, and is a notable, like, mega asshole. So they're brothers, and that's how they set up the whole Blood Brothers thing. Both of them have long white hair, they despise each other. Both of them are basically cable clones except that Cabot's mission is to kill his kin instead of his clone. Cabot doesn't seem to be anywhere near as strong as Battlestone who's portrayed as invulnerable yeah. but because of the Rob Liefeld comic that doesn't stop them from punching each other. Another way in which he's similar to Cable is that he has this Rome thing which gets used a lot in Bloodstrike presumably because they never really explained it. I think it's a computer that they communicate with almost like it's a sentient being. This computer not only gives them information and helps to track members of the team and track their adversaries but it also does the body slide which is funny because I think they literally take the term body slide from New Mutants and X-Force the cable comics admittedly that term was either created by Rob Liefeld or Fabian Nicieza when they were writing those books but they just wholesale steal that very specific term and so one of the things that's cool with Bloodstrike is they are able to teleport although it takes an enormous amount of energy and they can't just teleport willy-nilly the further the distance the more energy it takes and so on and so forth I guess they have the same technology as Gage from the four possibly in advance of that that they use to move the whole team around do you want to add anything on Cabot though as far as likes, dislikes, um, descriptions, anything like that? No, not really. I mean, you kind of described him who he 
was. Next foreplay, I'm assuming she's got superhuman strength. Maybe. She got the forearms. So that yeah, she has the forearms. And that's about it. I mean, she doesn't have anything besides the ability to beat you up with forearms. I like that she's got the, the for most of the series anyway, she's got the mask with no features. It's just got the slit down the middle of it. It makes her more menacing. Yes. Yeah, the helmet. Pretty early on, they established that she's a racist and a misogynist. And so that's somewhat unique for a female character in comic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it definitely gives her more personality than, say, Stasis with Brigade or something, which we'll get to. And so you also have Tag. She's a blonde woman who can freeze people with a touch. And she has those weird Spider-Man eye goggle things that just seem mm-hmm. like attached to her orbits. Yeah, it's obviously a Spider-Man thing, but because they seem to be like reflective and they have a little bit more dimension to him, you don't necessarily think of Spider-Man when you look at him. Because they're attached to her face, it's a really kind of a unique look, I think. Hmm. Well, you also forgot her other powers. She's a uh, very sexually aggressive. We'll get to that. Going back to the Zero issue, now the conceit of Brutalist is that Bloodstrike was supposed to have a 25 issue run, but what happened is Images of Tomorrow, and you want to explain that? Yeah, that was kind of a throw forward in future, where you would get this one issue that you stepped in the middle of it, so you weren't sure what was going on, you would see a villain, maybe your heroes were wounded or almost defeated, and they would allude to where the story arc was going to go. Yeah, it, all those all those series about a year early were going to jump to the 25th issue to show what they were leading up to and lead, and lead on a cliffhanger and then you're supposed to see, see the series work to that point. Many of the series that took part in Images of Tomorrow were cancelled before they ever reached the 25th issue including Bloodstrike. And so Michel Fife, this independent creator, I don't know if the offer came from Bob Liefeld first or if he was just such a huge fan of Keith Giffen's run on Bloodstrike that he wanted to see those stories finished. Whatever happened, ended up happening, he basically came in and did a three-shoe miniseries that filled in the gap, the two issues that were never published, 23 and 24, and then to round it out, he did a zero issue so it ended up being a 26 issue run roughly because of that addition and so he mm. helped explain some of how Bloodstrike came into existence in that miniseries with Michelle Fife. now at this show you have a new book out Bloodstrike that's right this is your first someone else's universe that you're working in the toys you're playing with Rob Liefeld's universe yeah I have the privilege of playing with Rob Liefeld's creations and it kind of started last year when I was like shopping for old comics filling my collection and I started rereading all the extreme books and I fell, I fell in love again with Bloodstrike, except um, a few issues were missing in the publishing history. So I figured, oh, let me just plug those in and see if that works as a story to sort of reintroduce the characters to the world. And so I pitched it to Rob, and he let me do my Coper thing, where, you know, which is write, draw, color, and pretty much take over the entire package and deliver it as such. And it's been fun, man. It's been great. It's I been just- awesome, because, I mean... I. It's what I grew up reading, so I try to put my new sensibilities onto those older characters, and I think it. I hope it worked. I hope it works for readers. Has he given you any direct feedback, or just kind of a thumbs up, and like, just go with it? Just go with it, and wow. the feedback has always been positive. He's That's like great. the best. He just let me go nuts That's on the awesome. characters. Who is the writer-artist of the Blood Strike that we're reading? So that's Michel Fife, and he's an independent artist, creator, writer, artist, colorist, the whole works, letterer, he does everything himself. And he's best known for a book called Copra, which I think started as a mini-comic, but I'm not 100% on that. He was one of the guys who did the whole analog thing, but like took it to the nth degree, where he basically appropriates his versions of these established characters, and then sort of continues the series, like legitimately wholeheartedly, not like as some sort of distant, observer 
observationalist critique of the work, but actually doing a fan fiction manifested as an actual comic book. And so Cobra is essentially a continuation of the John Ostrander era Suicide Squad. Pretty much oh, character cool. for character. You can see this. You can you look at the cover to the first volume. You can see there's Deadshot, there's Bronze Tiger, there's Share the Changing Man, so forth. Now, of course, he's developed those characters beyond that point, but that was clearly the genesis is he just decided he was essentially going to continue that series on his own. And I picked up the first round of Copra. I liked it well enough, but it came out at a time where I was being very picky about what books I'd continue because of discounts. If I wasn't getting at least a good 30% discount, I wasn't going to support your company because I wanted 40%, 50%. And it was published by this little tiny place called Bergen Street. And it was printed on this weird paper too. It was like a little bit smaller than the average comic. And it had sort of like a matte finished cover and like sort of Baxter's Doc page. It was a little bit different. You could tell that some thought went into the best presentation for his unique art style. And so I got it and I was only getting like a 20 or 25% discount on the trade. Being a cheapskate, I didn't continue with it even though I liked it fairly well. And then of course, lo and behold, he ends up doing a lot of stuff with the Fire and Water podcast. That brings me into his circle to some degree. I actually met him at Heroes Con very briefly at a dinner one time. He'll often listen to Spawnometer and helps promote it. Talks about it on his Facebook page and stuff. We brought him up many a times here on Spawnometer. Oh, cool. And much so, appreciated. Much appreciated, yeah. And so I think as a result of that association, he reached out to me and he let me know that he was working on a revival of the Rob Liefeld Bloodstrike book, Brutalists, three-issue miniseries. And because he wanted to have a lot of classic-style back matter, he wanted to have a letters column. And so if you're doing a three-issue miniseries, you can't wait for the book to be published to do that. He asked if I'd be interested in reading the first two issues of this three-issue miniseries. One would hope that he would know who he was asking that of. Because if he wanted somebody to blow smoke up his ass, I'm definitely not the guy to do that. My reputation precedes me. I'm the guy who, when my name comes up on Firewater Podcast, probably at least half the listeners are like, oh, fuck, this guy again. I'm the joy killer. My hope and expectation was that he asked me to do this because he knew that I would take it seriously, that I'd give him a lot of feedback, and that I wouldn't bullshit him. But I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me. I wanted to make sure there's more perspective than just mine. And in particular, I was hoping to take advantage of Mac's art school background because his style is so unique, so indie, multimedia. There's just a lot of stuff going on with his artwork, and I didn't feel like I had the vocabulary to be able to really discuss his artwork. I thought that Mac would be handy for that. Also, as much as I wanted to bring you into it, the problem is, is when he gave us those two issues to read, it was on a really unsecure platform, and I was terrified that we would accidentally somehow leak these two issues before they were published and basically ruin his career or ruin the bankability of the miniseries, and I just could not send it to your virus-laden contraptions without Ah. fear that it was going to end up on like one of the Russian bootleg sites or some shit, you know, before it ever got published. So as much as I wanted to have you involved, and at one point I was going to try to actually invite you to one of our two houses so you could look at it on our computers, and it just never fucking worked out. So it ended up being me and Mac reading those first two issues and sitting in a fan letter. And Mac, I believe, has had fan letters published, correct? No. No, no. I've been I've been uh, shouted out in episodes and I've in, in issues and I've been given partial creator credit in an issue, but I've never had a letter published. I think I sent a couple in, but no. Yeah, and I sent a few in too, and none of my shit ever got published. So in my decades of, of comic fandom, the only time I've ever had something published was under a pseudonym, writing for two people in Bloodstrike Brutalist number three. And I would like to go ahead and read that letter right quick. I tried to draft it so that both of our voices were reflected. To the extremists at the morgue, I was lucky enough to score preview copies of Bloodstrike Brutalist parts one and two, fitting as I've been accused of being brutal my own self, and now offer an honest review. On looking at the first page, I was struck with a mild panic at the sudden realization that I may have never read a Bloodstrike comic in my life, at least not one that I could recall without a lot of coaching. Aside from a vague understanding of it being about scientifically resurrected super soldiers, this title is a real blind spot for me. I felt like I needed to do more 
research before diving in, but stopped myself, figuring it might be more informative to come at this as a veteran comic reader. I also didn't feel like I was qualified to discuss the artwork on a technical level, and so reached out to my buddy Mac, who spent way too much time in art classes before picking a safer pursuit. We ended up largely in agreement. We understood the broad strokes of the story, but it felt like coming in on the second reel of an involved movie. There were so many references to characters and concepts with which we were unfamiliar, so many winks to the faithful, that it was a bit alienating. The tying up of loose ends became loose ends themselves, without knowing what they're supposed to be attached to. It's also completely understandable, because as fans, we love the minutia of continuity. Extreme Studios was packed swollen with fanciful material that demands to be elaborated upon, sending the imagination racing in a million directions. If I had the keys to a kingdom and only three issues to explore it, I'd go all in and damn the torpedoes too. But we're visitors at this clubhouse, and we know we're missing all the in-jokes. Hell, I expected Brutalist was going to be an indie anthology upon first hearing about the project, and didn't figure out that all these coming attractions were Grindhouse-style fake trailers until nearly wrapping the debut issue. The art is fantastic, as should be expected from the creator of Copra. The storytelling recalls the mid-80s experimental styles of greats like Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Keith Giffen, but with a more playful sense of innovation in the way the characters interact with comic book convention. Mac especially loved when Cabot sliced through the hologram's word balloon in the first issue. Moebius, Simon Bisley, and Gary Pinter are curious bedfellows, but their mark is felt here and it's inspired. Mac also name-dropped Kevin O'Neill and Sam Keith in relation to the lovely watercolors over a wild idiosyncratic art style. I dig the monochrome, crack Crayola moments, and register drifts conveying emotions from muted calm to hysterics. Despite feeling a bit left out, I still enjoy the stories. I certainly have a strong sense of who Deadlock and Tag are as people. I suspect that as I've started a chronological reading of image titles, I'll appreciate how your stories will inform my views of 90s tales I have ahead of me. I certainly know one friend who recently expressed a desire to finally resolve the decades-long mystery about the consequences of zombie VD will be relieved to get his hands on your second issue. The ultraviolence and adult themes are perfect for this setting and characters, giving me a giddy teenage kick. This is a comic that is high on its medium and its enthusiasm infects me. Reading Brutalist makes me want to investigate more extreme material to invest more in these properties and it makes me sad that we're only getting one short miniseries when so much more is promised within its pages. Still, there's an obvious satisfaction in finally completing the promised 25 plus issue run, probably more so after nearly a quarter century of anticipation and in such a vivid yet conscientious fashion. And Fife wrote back, I hate that you felt left out for a second. I knew there was a lot of information I was bombarding the reader with, but if anything felt unclear, I hoped it would stir a sense of intrigue instead of confusion. Sounds like I saddled the fence, considering the projected reread of Vintage Image you've embarked upon, which is related to your podcast, I bet. Go check out the Spawnometer podcast, folks. Frank and Mac, Rolls by Network, are thoroughly covering the Image Universe from the very beginning. It's a fun, deep dive. And speaking of the Image Universe, it keeps expanding. Just look at this month's checklist for proof. And so, unfortunately, he did tag Mac in that, rather than Mr. Fixit, my regular co-host, but Mac was the one who was actually working with me for the letter, so I think that's why where the confusion came from. So, Mac, was there anything I missed that you recall wanting to discuss? Oh, just that, you know, I, I think on a whole, I enjoyed the issue. I thought it was, it was just a blast, and I love Michelle Fife's art. It's just like, it's so bombastic and jumps off the page. Even though I totally didn't get some of the characters and where they were coming from, I still sort of jumped in and was just like, alright, let's just it's like watching uh, Tokyo Drift. You know what I mean? It's like, sure, you didn't see the first one, but or the second one or whatever, does it really matter? No, it doesn't really matter. Once you sort of just get into it and, and, and watch the movie, you have a blast. So, uh, Just on the record, Tokyo Drift is still my favorite of the Fast and the Furious movies, but I think that most normal human beings would take that as a backhanded compliment, but I understand no, what you no, meant. No, 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 no. It's what aged you meant. well. It's aged well. <laughs> so the team is supposed to get their start in 1988 in Detroit. They're on that mission against the Brotherhood of Man, the ancillary hide, and it was the first time that Cabot was supposed to be leading a team. What can you tell me about what happens in Bloodstrike Brutalist number zero? We start out with 
with Bloodstrike being fucking slaughtered. I mean, you see Shogun being shot down. You see Foreplay getting shot. They seem to be going after a Cobra Commander-looking-like character. The Brotherhood of Men, I think? The terrorist group that's anti-New Gene, anti-mutants? One of my favorites is the one with Foreplay being shot with multiple... I mean, you have, like, one arm being shot off. I remember looking at this like, holy shit, this looks fun. And, you know, Shogun, there's a countdown where he's shutting down, and they're all being killed. Fucking decimated. And then we go to uh, October of 88. Baltimore. Where we're going to meet Deadlock, which is our Wolverine-type character, which I really enjoyed what he did with him. John Locke. There's a Repo Man thing there, right? What do you mean? Isn't yeah. he doing e- Emilio Estevez or something? Kind of. I saw the t-shirt, and I thought that was a throwback to, uh, what are those video games? Black Mesa Portal. From what I got was the dude was coked up. It was the Repo Man where he found something in the trunk of a car that belonged to the government. They didn't end up selling before they could get to him. He dies. I guess we could call him Auto Dies. John Locke, the cokehead Repo Man, he has a heart attack when feds raid him because I guess he's just so coked up. And so in order to get the information on the equipment that he'd stolen and sold, they have to put him through Project Born Again to question him. To find whatever he sold. I believe it are weapons. In the movie or in the comic? uh, Well, in the movie, it's an alien. They're, Mm -hmm. They're aliens. In the comic, I believe there's some kind of weapons that he had found and he sold really quick. They do eventually tell you in the comic what it was, is it turns out that what he'd stolen was a prototype for a teleportation device. And that's how the members of the four, the villainous group that Deadlock's going to end up joining, that's how they're able to teleport from place to place, particularly the one guy who's got the red stripe on his face. Yeah. I'm trying to remember But the thing is, so if you look at his shirt, Deadlock's shirt, that's from Portal. And Mm -hmm. it's all about a teleportation device. (laughs) I remember seeing that. And that was kind of a nice, I'm hoping that was a nod to the game. But they take him back to Project Rebirth, which I still find a fascinating fucking idea. But the thing is, they come back, at least in the reading that I got, they become more cynical about life. Because what happens if you just, I mean, technically they're immortal. As long as they keep pumping money into that organization of Rebirth, they'll live forever. And you could shred them to nothing and they bring them back. I'll talk about it a little bit later. I mean, there's some great stuff that he did with other characters in the group. But I just love the fact that they're zombie, but they're not zombie kind of thing. I mean, they're still alive, but are they really alive? And then does that even constitute them as having rights anymore since they've already died? I'm trying to think, has anyone done a book similar to that? Because I know Suicide Squad, they die, they're dead. I can't think of any other groups where they keep bringing them back. Well, from I mean, dead. I assume that the basic premise was wiped from Universal Soldier, the Dolph Lundgren. Oh, well, yeah, uh, no, I got John that. Van Damme but the thing with those is once you shot them up, I mean, you could shoot them. I guess you're right. The premise, yeah, you're right. It is Universal. But I had never read a comic like that. Yeah. Well, and of course, the, the take of it on Bloodstrike, especially as the series progresses, is much darker than Universal Soldier. They make the reference to Repo Man in Brutalists, and there's also uh, references in Bloodstrike to Night of the Living Dead, and I think a lot of that punk rock vibe from Repo Man could also be seen in Return of the Living Dead, and I think a lot of the attitudes and the way that these characters are played with is maybe most similar to the Dan O'Bannon version of Zombies, where they can be sarcastic, and where they can be very acerbic. Send and, and, more brain. Right, exactly. You know, like They're not devolved to that degree, although there is some evidence that that might happen to certain people although we'll, we'll get yeah. to that a little later on it's not just oh yeah we're, we're zombie soldiers you know we're, we're zombie we, we're just a bunch of wolverines you can't be killed it's like no that it fucks with their head and it hurts when they're blown to pieces during a mission it fucking hurts them oh and yeah it, it caused them ptsd and all these other kind of psychological problems can i tell you something when i was reading this i didn't realize but i did get a return of the living dead vibe off of it mm-hmm. and i kept hearing that song do you want a party mm-hmm. in my head when i was reading it god damn i should have put it on the youtube while i was reading it Hey, 
crush him because they want the information. They don't really care about him being one of their agents. And it causes a lot of fucking problems because usually people are vetted for the program. Usually they like sign away their rights before they get involved in it. It's a years long process typically, at least at that point in the development of the technology. So they're putting this already dead, unwilling civilian through the process and it seems to pretty well fuck him up. And so it takes until June of 1989. That's when Patient 10, the Locke character, he managed to escape. He kills a guard and then he goes on this fucking killing streak. I mean, I guess you could say he was a serial killer. Doing some Son of Sam shit where he's killing couples, you know, just random people. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that was kind of what I started enjoying more about the book was they weren't so much heroes anymore. They were truly a suicide squad in the terms that they become villainous. They weren't even heroes anymore. They did really bad things. Deadlock is a serial killer. Technically, Tag is a serial killer. Well, okay, but don't, but don't, yeah, but let's not, let's keep with the synopsis first before we get into that okay. stuff. While he's having his spree, he gets located by Gage, who's the red streaked face guy from the four. And it turns out he's the one who got the device, the teleportation device, and he recruits him to be a member of the four. So we flash forward to October of 1989 in Los Angeles. They do interact with Youngblood. We do see Chapel getting his bike blown up. And the four are supposed to be having their first encounter with Youngblood. The timeline of this, you know, as much as I can and Fife for the work he does on Brutalist. The timelines in this book don't fucking work. And we'll, we'll get into that more later on. Okay. But the way it's portrayed, they're making it seem like this is maybe Youngblood's first mission or the Four's first mission. But no, by, it's the Four's first mission. Huh? I got that vibe. Yeah, but it, does, uh, it doesn't jive because the Four should have been around longer and the, the Youngblood oh. team that's going up against them was a later version of the team. It, it doesn't really work oh. that great. Maybe they're just referring to it's the first time Chapel, Die Hard, and Vogue as a team has gone up against the Four. Vogue does say that they slap on some face paint and think they're upgraded. The four end up bolting before Youngblood kicks their asses, but they leave Deadlock behind, claiming that he's like a pity recruit, that they only brought him in because he was handy, I guess. Because he's left behind, what happens to him? Chapel beats the living fuck out of him. I think murders him, doesn't he? I, I believe he takes out his aggression at not being able to capture the other three of the four and just when beats that, the dude to death. He got his bike blown up, too, I think. Oh, that too, yes. So yeah, yeah he, they straight up beat him the fucking death. So that guy shows well, I think you... Chapel did. I, I don't believe Die Hard and Vogue were those type of heroes, but I, Chapel definitely was. Yeah. And that leads, yeah, that'll lead more into some stuff in the future. And they didn't exactly stop him either. No, nah, true. You see Deadlock, he's beat death, teeth missing, bleeding. I think he dies and they're going to bring him back. He goes through Project Born Again again. Now that they're working on this blood strike project, this blood strike division, using the dead from Cabot's first mission, he's going to be incorporated into that. Yes. That's when we see Cobalt. That character we see jumping with the staff, is that one of those Kerbrew or whatever? Yeah, okay. So we're, we're jumping a month later in November to Morocco. And we Morocco. see the reanimated foreplay and Shogun joined by newbie members of the of the newly christened Bloodstrike team, Deadlock and Tag. They're being led by Cabot, and they appear to capture two renegade male Catellans, one of whom looks to be combat. Okay, that's what I thought. And then there's a third female Catellan who gets fucking decapitated when Deadlock goes full fucking feral on her, and he gets gunned well, down he, by Shogun. I mean, he bites her on the neck. He tears into her jugular, and that's when the team decides there's something wrong with him. But yeah, and there's another way where the timeline doesn't work because Bloodstrike is supposed to be around before combat but then if you look at the Youngblood Genesis miniseries we read a while back and the original plans for Youngblood Year One combat was supposed to be one of the first members of Youngblood after Operation Nightstrike gets shut down so how could Bloodstrike be capturing combat when combat was in a, a member of a Youngblood team from before the team that fought <laughs> it just it just doesn't yeah. make any sense no 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 I mean I, I get what you're saying there's yeah there's some discrepancies definitely but when he rips that girl's head off though that is fucking gritty
Grizzly. Oh, yeah, when he's chewing into her. And the thing goes, and that reminded me of the uh, What If with Wolverine and the Inferno, where they hand him the newborn and he's about to eat the newborn. I don't know, it's a great look. Very yeah. visceral. Even when you're used to violence, that level of violence is kind of shocking to you. But entirely appropriate for Bloodstrike. And see, this yes. is the thing, too, is we were talking before about how me and Mac read the Brutus miniseries without knowing fuck all about Bloodstrike. I was glad to be able to experience the book from that completely virgin standpoint. And now I'm going into it as somebody who's well-versed in Bloodstrike. And so I can see where the timelines are kooky. But I think that generally speaking, I really appreciate this information getting filled in. And even if you have to play around with some of the dates and play around with some of the sequences, I think it is still valuable to get a sense of who these characters are. I like that even though Deadlock is still clearly a Wolverine type or a Sabretooth type, really more like, he's just so much more bestial and so much more fucked up that he has his own kind of vibe. Well, I actually was reading Bloodstrike and I still have my Bloodstrike comics. So for me, this was a nice completion. Yeah, which especially the one story that we're going to get to. Yeah, it was so funny. I w- did I mention it before you brought it up? What do you mean? In, in the to FIFA or? No, no, before that. I remember. You, well, you've been talking to me about digging that story arc for years. Okay. That goes back yeah, I was gonna to. Say, I'm pretty sure I, I brought it up way before FIFA had written it or anything like that. That, that is true. Now, I'm sure that FIFA is a big Bloodstrike fan, too. So I, I don't think he needed you to prompt him. But you both go back to the day being a yeah. fan of that story arc. Oh, no, no. I just I was always disappointed because I always thought. I remember telling you one time. Like, that was such but, a great idea and never finished it. And it always just. It had, it, it, it had found okay, this little but, corner in the back of my mind to sit there and just grow and grow. And I always thought about it. And I was just like, well, it's just one of those things that will never end. So I, I appreciate this more than you understand. Like, I, I'm sure. I, yeah. Again, I love the fact that, you know, deadlock, they have to keep them medicated. Like, I like the fact that. These, yeah, see, you explain these, that, too, because we, we didn't explain the ending of the story. So we jumped well, to March of 1990 in Washington, D.C. The deadlock's reanimated and he undergoes uh, successful therapy to tame his homicidal rage. Well, he's on the bench. They're not letting him take missions. Until they're, like they're keeping a, him medicated. Yeah, a few months later, he's I, gone I believe he's a serial killer. At this point, he's already a serial killer, but they well, don't know it yet. That's one of the things that they are ambiguous about, and I don't know that Fife resolved that aspect. Keith Giffen in the Bloodstrike series sets up this premise that you've got a version of Deadlock that was a member of the Four and was seemingly a homicidal maniac serial killer, and then you've got the version that's a member of Bloodstrike that's actually a functional team member and more like a Wolverine type at worst. These guys are seemingly operating at the same time, and there's a question of well is there two of them is one of like the brother of the other one Fife makes reference to a potential of them him being cloned and so that's one area where he still continues to tease without really giving a firm confirmation is Deadlock a serial killer or not my assumption based on how much time we spend with him doing the shit that he's doing my assumption is that he's got multiple personality disorder he just has these episodes that it's the same guy it's not crystal clear but I think that's what he's alluding to I think he's trying I think it's very clear that he alludes to no it's the same guy and he just goes fucking straight psycho at times that makes sense well i mean and he leaves it open for another book yeah well and i don't want to see two deadlocks running around anyway i think it's more interesting for this guy to just be this dangerous loose cannon type oh yeah, yeah. that's the one where i want to read where they allude to it a little bit of where they come back and it's a little bit of a struggle sometimes but you got to figure like someone like deadlock likes coming back because he wants to keep doing what he's doing he seems to have the least reservations about it yeah yeah it doesn't bother but him also, as much as the other team, also though i think his member. memory's been fucked up again it's it's almost like a, a sly little wink at the, the Wolverine-osity of the character is mm-hmm. that in the FIFA says that he doesn't remember any of his times working with the Four. So whether that's like a Hulk thing where one of his personalities remembers being a member of the Four and the other one doesn't or it's like a Wolverine thing where it's like well I used to be in the Four but I don't remember that shit anymore you know like the Weapon X project or something. Yeah. I, I assume that that was kind of a sly little wink to that. Okay yeah. Love the artwork. I love the ultraviolet. Kind of reminded me of Faust. Mm, yeah. Remember that? Old he, 
he I think that he was a Faust reader. I think that he he's really? brought up Faust on occasion because he does okay. a lot of yeah. he he gets on I like just... I think Instagram or Patreon and he'll do these dissertations on artists, paragraphs and paragraphs talking about Tom Tinney in his very brief period in comics, working on like Force Works and Chapel and shit. He loves Keith Giffen and I think he's talked about Faust a time or two as well. Okay, yeah, because I just had a very Faust vibe to it with the gore and stuff. So do you want to go into twenty three now? Well, actually, no, I don't want to jump that far ahead. So instead, we're actually going to jump backwards to Bloodstrike number one, the remastered one that you read. They're in Arizona, get contacted by Central Intelligence as part of their ties to the U.S. government. They're supposed to go down and check out this Jericho base that's run by Gate International. And in particular, there's a fellow named Commander Corbin that they've been sent to kill. There's some like vague assertion that Gate's working on some kind of technology they're not supposed to have, or this guy's like a rogue element that might use this high technology. So what happens in that book? They're trying to invade this fortress. So they go in as a two-man team. So you have Cabot and Tag are going in silently. They do the stealth kills. They send Foreplay and Deadlock to go and uh, create a diversion, drawing the attention of, what was his name, Commander? Uh, let's see, Corbin. But we don't have to go to Corbin. that level of detail, just like okay, broad okay. strokes. Uh, basically, it's Lex Luthor. He looks like Luthor. But the purple and green, I thought it looked like Lex Luthor's old yeah. costume. But uh, a fatter, older guy. So kind of like post-crisis Lex Luthor, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I'll go with that. Cabot and Tag are cornered by the commander and his troops. They're about to shoot, and then all of a sudden, Shogun comes bopping in, full armored out. They're firing at him. Some kind of protective shield between the troops and Cobalt and Tag. Out comes all the weapons. Shooty, 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 shooty. Kills all the troops. Turns out that the commander is actually a hologram, but he knew Cabot's name, which fucking really annoys. Like Not just that, but also his... How did he know his name? He he knew not only his name, but also his rank. He was calling him Colonel Cabot. Which really bothered him, because no one was supposed to know about this team coming in. They can't get out, so they jump on Shogun's back, doing his transport thing. At this point, Deadlock, to me, looks like Wolverine if he had stayed in Canada, because he has the red and white going on. I just need a big maple leaf somewhere, and that would have been Wolverine (laughs) in Canada. I I didn't catch that, but good catch, yeah. Fighting, bam, bam, kill, kill, punch, punch, kick, kick. Foreplay, I think, is pretty cool. I like the forearms. It just would have been cool if she had four tits, too. Just, I'm just saying. She has a top correct. set and then she has a smaller bottom set. Sort of like yeah, abs, yeah, but yeah, she has like, like uh, Yeah, kind of this weird. I'm thinking maybe even like from uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Total Recall, yeah. Give her a third boot. That'll work. Make her really different. So Shogun shows up. The team's all together. They're going to go after the commander. The big reveal is given that the commander is actually the one that hired them because the people above him felt that either what that he was lacking or wasn't sufficient in protecting the fortress. So he needed to prove that he could. So he hired Bloodstrike to try and invade. They come in. And of course, he has these devices that apparently lets him teleport. And basically, all his powers are in his little suit, which would have been very Lutheran-esque, wouldn't it? Sure. He shoots Cabot, thinking that he's dead. And he's laughing about it. Cabot stands up. Can't kill a dead man. Shogun fires. He hits the guy's controllers. He lands. Tag touches him. He's frozen. And actually, this scene was kind of cool, where they're walking out. And basically, Shogun goes full uh, armored core, release all weapons weapons blast blast shoot shoot and you literally see the holes blasting through him and they talk, they describe how you hear like what's left of his blood draining from his body so i'm assuming when tag touches you even if you're getting shot you can't move at all your body's just frozen so he's basically just standing there draining of all his blood and they teleport out and this is what's going to lead us into their confrontation with brigade so, yeah you're doing brigade dude because that <laughs> fucking book was oh by the way who wrote this that issue i think was liefeld and uh, Derek stevenson again wasn't it let me see script was 
Derek Stevenson story layout breakdown Rob Layfield. Oh hey, what did you think of the art by Dan Fraga? It was pretty good. I mean, it was very nineties. It was very image. I think um, on the best clean. pages, on the best pages, I think he recalled Art Adams, but there was a lot of Liefeldian stuff in there too. So no, nah, I wouldn't like, say Art Adams. No, no, no. He's not as detailed as Art Adams. But he, but he he's, he's got a lot of detail, and if you look at his stuff as it progresses, especially when he does Black Flag, it's much more Art Adams esque. No, no, I would say more uh, Del Keonish light, maybe uh, I don't Stephen see Platt. The, I don't, nah, I don't see that. I don't, I don't see either one of those in there. I'm sorry. I, I do. I, I, I don't. But a lot of really nice, fine details in right, places. I, I mean, line, but but also I, a lot of light building really stuff detailed. too. I wouldn't say it's very detailed. I mean, it's it's clean. I mean, I enjoy it. It's it's not it's not like oh my god, I gotta own a page, but yeah, that's fine. I do like that one page with the Canadian Wolverine. That's about it. <laughs> it's just a great shot. So out of the the Blood Brothers crossover, Brigade gets launched as an ongoing series following the four issue miniseries that we read previously and so it opens up in malibu california it's three months since the team had left the earth they had all their fight with genocide and atlas got killed and yada yada so they get back to earth they're flying the spacecraft they land in the secret brigade compound apparently battlestone has complete lack of emotion it seems like and so the team is like we need to address what happened to atlas we need to address the future of the team and he just has no time for molly cuddling these kids or anything like that stasis has basically had enough stasis is the blonde girl with the weird necklace thingy and the green suit who basically mm-hmm. has the same power that Tag has and so she's had enough of Battlestone she goes to walk away to quit the team and then she's immediately shot in the fucking head Cab is the one who shot her and basically treats it as though that were a warning shot by killing one of the fucking members and meanwhile <laughs> Forearms like yeah you fucking killed that stupid broad good fucking job man you could probably take all these guys on your own they're wasting the money by bringing the rest of us in on this shit and it's like she has no remorse about the murder of this woman just calls her a fucking broad that's where the misogyny part comes in and then later she goes on to beat the fuck out of K.O. who she calls China Man, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, he's actually Japanese, by the way. But yeah, so that's where the racism comes in. I know that she made a bunch of other rude noises and maybe like allusions to the Siamese twins and Lady in the Tramp. I, I just that she had that whole vibe going on. The teams fight. Ultimately, a few members escape, including Battlestone. Battlestone decides he's going to take Stasis to the Gate facility in Los Angeles, where he's going to get help from Doctor Sandler. Sandler helps Cold Snap, one of the team members, to recover. Cold Snap is the guy who had like the Iceman powers, but he was pretty yeah, lame. But, he, but his were con- controlled, right, by some kind of device? Yeah, right. And so when they shoot him, the device like overloads and it gets frozen solid, essentially. And so they take him to Gate, and I don't know if it was Gate or if it was his own healing, but eventually he morphs into like this giant ice monster. He's still conscious and everything, but he's got all these like spikes and shit. And if you remember correctly, that's another one of those deals where Iceman ended up stealing from Image when they had him be all like badass and, and sharp and stuff for a while there. Yeah. The reason why Battlestone took Stasis' corpse to Gate was apparently this Dr. Sandler dude has some variation on the Project Born Again technology. And even though Battlestone repeatedly says that he hates the whole resurrection process, he's going to try to resurrect her because he's not willing to let her go. Most of the rest of his team has either been captured by Bloodstrike or they're kind of on the loose. And so because he's lost so many team members, he goes back to people he used to work with, basically the Brigade .5 version, you know, before they actually had a proper group. Brigade. And so he recruits these guys, Boone and Hacker. They uh, will appear in a, a Brigade Zero issue that shows, you know, how it led to this point. Cabot reminds me a lot of Cable. I would say Boone's a lot like Kane. Do you remember Kane? Yes. Tell me a little bit about Kane from the Weapon X Project. There was like four of them, wasn't there? There was Lady Deathstrike, Wolverine. Well, okay, so Kane uh, first appeared in one of the early issues of X-Force. And he was this younger guy who had like detachable hands they could send off that's to like choke people and shit. Okay, yeah. And he had been a member of 
of the proto version of Cable's X-Force called the Six Pack, a group of mercenaries that he worked with. Not unlike Battlestone had his team of mercenaries who weren't called Brigade, but they were essentially the prototype of the Brigade. And so Boone's this dude who's like kind of young and kind of cocky and he shoots guns and he's got a ponytail and he's got brown hair and he's the younger guy who's sort of critical of Battlestone. But it's one of those instances where you can't be the cool cocky guy when you're on a team full of nothing but cool cocky people. He doesn't really stand out in that respect, but at least he ran around and shot guns. So that's cooler than being a guy who shoots ice, apparently. Then there's Hacker, who's their computer hacker, and he was working with Boone on a Silicon Valley heist before that went south and they were recruited to rejoin Battlestone. Meanwhile, there's another member of the proto group, Lethal, who is like this ninja assassin gal in, in like red armor with a face mask and a long ponytail thing. And she's pretty much the same as that ninja gal from Youngblood, but red instead of green and purple. If Boone is Kane, then she's like Domino to Battlestone, where they clearly have this past relationship. Maybe there's some allusion to some romance between her and Cabot. I'm not sure. Again, when the team has been knocked out the way that new mutants were knocked out by Deadpool that time, she shows up out of nowhere to help out the team again. Specifically, she goes and she rescues Seahawk. And Seahawk is the deadlock of Brigade. You know, he's sort of a Wolverine type, except he flies and his mask is pointier in two different directions in silver, but still basically kind of like a Wolverine type with a healing factor. He gets gunned down. He heals up within a span of a few well, hours, and, shit like that. Him and Cold Snap are brothers, right? Yeah. You know, I don't want to go too deep into Brigade because they'll have their own episode later on. But yeah, they're, they're both brothers and I think they're both Latino too, which I think is pretty cool. So while Lethal is rescuing Seahawk from Bloodstrike, she spills tea on Battlestone war against the government. Once he got drummed out of Youngblood, he decided to be totally anti-government. And the reason why he goes and recruits the Barros brothers is because they have their own personal fortune. They're young, rich guys. He was using their money to put together Brigade. He's been using them the whole time, it seemed like. She also reveals that Battlestone is a product of Project Born Again. That's why he always looks so yellow and jaundiced because he's another fucking zombie. The other members of Bloodstrike are also zombies, but they have normal complexions because she says they're vain, essentially, is that they'll use makeup to cover up so they don't look so undead. Eventually, everything comes to a head at gate. The Bloodstrike team blows up the Empire Strikes Back Luke Skywalker recovery tube that Stasis was in. They convince Battlestone that even if they could revive her, they shouldn't. It's immoral. And so he takes his new version of Brigade and manages to fight back against Bloodstrike. Ultimately, it comes down to a, a fight between Battlestone and Cabot. Even though, again, Cabot seems to be a lot weaker than Battlestone and seems to actually want to die, Battlestone, A, doesn't want to kill him because he feels like it's going to be worse on him if he has to stay alive, but also he's able to blackmail Cabot because the assumption by everybody in the Extreme Universe is that if the public knows about Project Born Again, they'll turn on the government and there'll be all this Watergate craziness and shit going on. And so they're mm-hmm. able to cow the team by threatening to reveal them publicly. Not only does Bloodstrike have a lot in common with the Suicide Squad, but specifically the whole blackmail angle is very similar to how they cowed Batman in, I think it was issue eight of Suicide Squad. So you can see where the influence is definitely there. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is you may remember Brigade was one of the image titles I collected when I was collecting all the image titles, trying to support the whole line. It's one of the comics I hated the most that I'd ever read up to the point when Brigade was coming out. Because I hated the Brigade miniseries so much, and I don't think I even finished it, or I'm not sure, I don't know if I finished it or not, but I definitely didn't want to finish it. When they were announcing the ongoing series, I had no intention of buying it. But one of the things that piqued my interest is they were soliciting Bloodstrike number one, and they did the whole rub the blood thing, and then on the opposing page in advanced comics and previews, distributor catalogs, they had an ad that was never used for cover or anything, but a shot of Battlestone with his hands up in the air, cursing the skies, surrounded by the brigade team who are all covered in blood, and so it's rub the blood, they did, alluding to Bloodstrike kill the entire brigade team. For half a second, 
I actually thought about buying Brigade Number One just because I wanted to see the carnage. I wanted to see if they actually would have the balls to let Bloodstrike kill most of Brigade. And also, there was some solicitation stuff that made it look like there was going to be a new Brigade team, so you got the sense that they were just going to wipe out most of the lane members, right? And what that reminded me of was the Ultra Versus Exiles. Do you remember that book? Yes. Well, okay. So which Exiles are you talking about? Are you talking about the one from Malibu? I'm talking about the original Ultraverse Exiles. So there was like a Grim Reaper kid. Okay, so I didn't read it. I read the one with Juggernaut. Okay, so that was later on. That was after Marvel. Bought yeah, that's Ultraverse. that's all. The only Exiles. I, the only reason I read it was because for some short time Juggernaut was thrown into their universe and he's running around with them. And I collected those issues because yeah. I'm a huge Juggernaut fan. So the original, by the way, Juggernaut's getting a mini series by uh, Ron Garney and Fabian Nicieza. Uh It's going to be a five issue mini series, and it's going to uh, that's coming up in the future if the comic industry survives that long it will exiles was one of the early books from i think it was the ultraverse i think i don't think it was a genesis title i think it was an ultraverse yeah it was an ultraverse title and of course ultraverse was the line of superhero titles using mostly bronze age marvel talent to launch a new superhero line with the money that malibu made while they were distributing images comic books and so exiles was going to be their x-men team it was basically the exact same premise it was this team of people who were born with superpowers they were like prejudiced against them and shit i think that one of the co-publishers I think Chris Ulm and one of the other guys that was a publisher were writing the book and I think Paul Peltier was the original artist on it mm-hmm. and so it was an obvious X-Men wannabe group very similar to the X-Mutants which Malibu was also publishing but wasn't part of the Ultraverse because they were an old line of X-Men knockoffs from back before Malibu was like a one company it was, I think they got it from like Eternity or something and so anyway the Exiles come out they give it a big launch and everything else and you think they're going to be a big deal and they solicited something like six or seven issues of this book now there's a big controversy when Exiles came out because the intention was for it to always be a four-issue miniseries. On the fourth issue, one of the members was going to have an explosion of power, like Dark Phoenix, basically, and kill all the other members of the team with these explosion of power, and then launch the first Ultraverse crossover breakthrough, uh, which I believe George Perez was going to be drawing, right? And so tons of retailers were pissed off because Malibu knowingly solicited issues of Exiles that they knew they had no intention of ever publishing because they were trying to avoid spoilers. They didn't want anybody to know they were going to kill this Exiles team this team was essentially born to die. And of course, there's a level of contempt there because you're launching this book with this team of heroes and they're not like they're anything great or anything for the most part, but to launch a book in bad faith with the full knowledge that you're going to kill all the people in this book and maybe render the previous three issues moot and unsellable because who gives a shit about a team that's going to die in the fourth issue? And so retailers were really pissed off at it. Some of the fans were pissed off about it. And to me, it felt like they were doing the same thing with Brigade. They put the miniseries out. It wasn't perhaps the best received of the image books. You know, again, I hate the shit out of it. And so they're just going to go and kill the whole fucking team because, okay, these guys didn't work out. We'll just fucking kill them and then we'll give you a whole new team of more cool, badass characters. And so as much as I kind of had an interest in, in the carnage and I was very much a grim and gritty kid back in those days, it left a bad taste in my mouth that they had so much okay. contempt for their own characters. And also looking at it from a historical standpoint all these years later, recognizing that you've got that one wraparound cover that Rob Liefeld and Jerry Ordway did that showed the entire proto-extreme universe and showed the brigade team in their original form and here Stasis was a member of this team one of the founders and they just killed her for shock value it still doesn't sit well for me how much contempt they have for their character especially because Liefeld has a history of killing off early prominent Extreme Studios characters for shock value so if you like Fife I got his graphic novel Zegas I put it on the shelf and I haven't pulled it down yet just because there's shit like Spawnometer to read for we're having to read like 12-15 issues of fucking Bloodstrike for an individual episode of the podcast and also Copra has moved to Image Comics so now you get the full image discount I don't know if they're still doing them in the altered format from the original publisher
feature, but they're now available at, at a cheaper price and more readily available too. So you might well, be actually so I, able to. I, I'm the ultra cheap bastard, so I actually go to Hoopla through the public library. But yeah, does an nah. image have a deal with Hoopla or no? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I, so, I, I think I just saw. So after reading this, I went in there and found his name, and I saw some of the books he did. So I, I think I put like those on my waiting list because I definitely want to read those now. It looks like he did some stuff on the Ultimates line too. Did he? Really, I really enjoy this style of artwork. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It just kind of takes me back. You know, you like your two different styles. You're clean and you're very detailed, but I just love this style. I like the use of the colors, and it's just kind of a crazy style. I, I, I enjoyed reading the book, so and I oh, like, you know, again, just the continuation of the story. I, I love that, you know, he brought up Max and the the, the two people that tagged. I didn't realize it was Tag who was sleeping well, well, on people. Okay, I thought now, it was well, but Hold on, before, because that's oh. getting too deep in the weeds, so oh, okay. we'll actually do synopsis stuff later on, but I did want to say, what I like about his art style is the guy uses multiple media, and it works, it reminds me a lot of Bill Sienkiewicz, where you wouldn't know where one technique ended and another one began, and so it's cool because his style is kind of loose, feels very organic, you're not seeing like the same kind of techniques you'd see from other people, like cross-hatching and stuff, got like some stifling things going on there, he's doing all this different stuff, and so it's hard to fully perceive what he's doing, and it's really loose, and yet it's also very detailed and kind of tight at the same time, nobody else draws like him, and it's really fascinating to see his interpretations of different characters. Who's the artist that read, who started doing Profit for her Image? Oh, I'll have to look into that one. Uh, but uh, but since since you, uh, another one you ought to look into too is he did a mini series at IDW called G.I. Joe uh, Sierra Muerte. So you can see, see his style applied to the Joes. Ooh, I gotta check that out. Is it as bloody or? Uh, I, I don't know. I didn't read it myself. Okay. I have to look into that then. That's, I do I do enjoy reading G.I. Joe comics. Takes yeah. me back. I want to say it was the Multiple Warheads guy. I'm trying to look it up now. He does all this kind of crazy indie stuff. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Brandon Graham and Simon okay. Roy. Okay, so no, I completely messed that up. I don't know who Simon Roy is. Brandon Graham wrote Multiple Warheads. No, he, okay, so it is the guy who did Multiple Warheads. It's just he didn't draw it. He just wrote it. Wrote it, okay. Why were you bringing it up, though? You just like the crazy... Oh, no, no, I just, I, yeah, those that style. It's it's just yeah, a I, different style I, of I artwork. I like that Liefeld it's turned refreshing. over... Yeah, I like that he turned over so many of his properties to more indie-minded people, and it seemed like people, it resonated with people in a way that maybe some of the more Liefeldian revivals didn't. They weren't like huge successes. Most of them didn't last more than a year or so. But people seem to look on them very fondly. Yeah. Like I said, this was a fun read. When you gave me this stuff to read, I was a little hesitant. So I read Zero, fell in love with it, and then we did, you know, 23, 24, all in the same sitting. And I was like, well, fuck it. Now I got to go back and start reading the other stuff he wants me to read. <laughs> so I went back and read the, the Giffen stuff through Bloodstrike, which I enjoyed. Up to issue nine, though. It's a different writer. Well, okay, let's, let's not, because yeah. let's, let's go ahead and take this piece by piece. So our Spawnomaniacs include the 20th Century Geek Podcast, the 108th Stage, Adriano, Dr. Ange, Biko Django, Billy Dees, Black Lives Matter at Kamikaze Bear, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Christopher Bush, Dark Peach Boy, DeBeche, Delvin, Derek William Crabb, a Fanholes Podcast, and History of Comics on Film, Ed Moore, El Romero Romero, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, Giant Foam Dick Hat, Illegal Machine, who wrote Frank Casually Drops These In-Person Interviews with Creators, he did a great job with Bart 
Robert Sears, Iowa Joe Crawford, Jason Carpenter, Jason Snicked Venable, Jeffrey Brown, JLI Podcast, Jomeo and Rulietz, Kat Kohlberg Writes, Keith G. Baker, Christados, Mass, Mike had sent aliens to me, Mike Peacock, who wrote Can't Wait to Dig In, one of my favorite shows on the network, Michael Wagner, who wrote Great Episode, Excited When This Is In My Queue, Miracle Man, Not Very Spicy Shrimp, Odell Abner Dracula, Only the Lonely, Professor Frenzy, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Richard G., who wrote Always Great to Be Given a Shout Inclusion, Thanks, Spawn is Pretty Good Too, Ryan Daly, Savage Fincast Podcast, Schlocktopus Inc., Siskoid, Sue Kent Ant, Talk Nerdy to Me, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things at John Reed's Comics, Trans Lesbian Plant Eater, Xanadude, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, plus we got an email from Mike Laughlin on the Violator episode. He wrote, I remember reading Violator number one and finding it off-putting. I read the rest of the series, though, and kind of enjoyed it. My theory is that the decline in sales came about because readers didn't know what to make of it. The series was more violent than a typical issue of Spawn. I'd never been a gore hound, so I didn't like that aspect. Readers used to the PG-13 violence of most early image comics might have felt the same, although it wouldn't surprise me if more were wondering why Spawn wasn't that violent all the time. The tone of the series could have been a factor. I liked the humor, but other readers could have rejected the book because of the jokes. Spawn was a ponderously humorous series during its heyday, and the average Spawn reader might have rejected the Violator comic because it didn't read like the main series. Finally, Violator was written by Alan Moore in 1994. His last big mainstream comic prior to his image work were Watchmen and Batman the Killing Joke. From Hell, Big Numbers, and Lost Girls were coming out from indie publishers and not on your average superhero comic book reader's radar. Watchmen was a revolutionary work that held popular appeal, and Killing Joke was a huge seller that appeared to treat its characters seriously. Violator, on the other hand, was a jokey, gory, junk food comic. The greatest comic book writer ever wrote a paycheck comic. I think more fans didn't like it, Killing Joke fans didn't like it, and those of us who knew Alan Moore by reputation or from Spawn 8 were disappointed. I think Violator probably reads better now without the surprise, shifts in tone, or the weight of expectation. I would agree. I enjoyed it. It was fun. I read it when it came out. I thought it was okay. It didn't really drive me to read other books, uh, and it definitely wasn't. I, you know, I, I wasn't putting Alan Moore in a pedestal over Violator, but I got the joke, and it was fine. And I, and I was a gorehound, so that aspect didn't bother me any. But I maybe wasn't your typical yeah. Spawn reader, because by that point, I, I wasn't reading Spawn. I mean, I wasn't a great lover of it. I wasn't like, oh my god, this was great. I thought it was okay. Even now, when we read it, I thought it was okay. Would I read it again? Probably not, ever again. I'd be fine with it. Yeah, I, I did kind of set you up for that one. But hey, it was Alan Moore, so you know, it never hurts yeah. to give Alan Moore a second pass. Again, I, I enjoy some of Alan Moore stuff, but not everything. Yeah, some of it is definitely for a paycheck. And listeners, be sure to stay for one of the creators of this comic book, if you'd like, at the end of the episode. It's a little bonus content for you folks. Okay, Who did now, you interview? Remember Dan Frega? Dan Frega. Who? Dan oh, Frega. Oh, okay. Well, uh, and, and then Bart Sears was in the Violator episode. Nice. As you can see, I haven't listened to our shows. I've been, uh, I haven't listened to any podcast. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I need to catch up on a lot of stuff. I don't know. I guess I got kind of burnt out a little bit. Just relax. You having fun? Oh, yeah, dancing. I'm good. Why? I can do the splits. No problem. Teach me. I can do it. You want me to break my leg? Go for something unusual. Something hard. Big surprise. Huge surprise.
Kumite, and welcome to Van Dam. It's Jean Claude, a podcast where we're going to delve deep into who Jean Claude Van Dam is, review his movies, and just talk about them because I'm a huge fanboy for Jean Claude Van Dam. I'm your host, Paul Schroyer. I know me from uh, such podcasts as Pointless Discussions. We'll see how this goes. It's going to be awesome talking about one of my favorite subjects. And don't worry, guys, we will be discussing his butt a lot in this podcast because who doesn't love Jean Claude's Van Damme butt? First Saturday every month, join us. The squirrel was magic! I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Welcome to a night of total terror. That's Mickey Mouse's penis. I knew it was the terror. They don't look to be afraid. They look to be shocked. Here's vagina. It's did you see Miley Cyrus's globulous breath. Night of the Living Podcast. I yeah. found more syrup on my pants. Bizarre <laughs> adventure in fear. There was, however, a guy using an experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. <laughs> Night of the Living Podcast. Ass to mouth is fantastic. Yeah. Holy shit! That just happened. What's that bad man doing to my donkey? Yeah, A night of total terror. I can't maintain this level of ridiculousness. Night. Of the living podcast. So, just to make sure I'm actually getting it right, it's Dan Frago, right? Frago. Yeah, it sounds like Sega. No, uh, you went to the Kubert School, right? I did not. You did not? Okay, I thought that uh, there was a fellow I'm, I'm friendly with named Rob Kelly who went there that I thought you were, were familiar with, no? No, not at all. No. Sorry, my mistake. No, I got, uh, I got hired out of high school to join comics. I started in 1992. In uh, February of 92, Rob Liefeld had hired me right out of high school. I heard that you had kind of a rough start with Eric Larson, though. Is that right? I did. I did. When I was 14, he said, uh, he took a look at one of my drawings and said, uh, you're never going to be a comic book artist. Yeah. Uh, Did you, uh, you got some encouragement, though, from a pretty legendary creator. Uh, Something about never, uh, it never hurts, uh, they can only say no? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing thing I've always try to do is uh take chances and reach out and um i would ask i would dial information and call up different comic book artists and guys like jack kirby and mike zek and uh carl potts and guys like that would give me encouragement so you know it balanced out i heard too weren't you in contact with jack kirby i was in contact with jack kirby i it was san diego comic con of 89 and i asked him for his phone number and he gave it to me, and I used to call him probably once or uh, twice a month and just chat with him. And when I moved down here to, well, when I moved down to Southern California, 
we used to make studio trips to his house. Yeah. So was uh, Bloodstrike your first p- published work? Very first published work was in a pinup in Brigade Zero, or no, Brigade Two, and then my first published story was Young Blood Zero, but my first book was Bloodstrike One. I didn't want to get in the way. Uh, did you get to contribute to the development of the, the property of Bloodstrike, or was it more just like, this is my first thing, let me, let me just get this done? It was more of this is my first thing. Those are Rob's characters, his designs. He did some layouts. I, you know, I was just happy to be in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, you left the book after a few issues. Was that just to pursue other opportunities? Uh, no, I didn't like the direction of the book. Uh, originally, Rob was writing it, and it was uh, very much in the flavor of like Universal Soldier and uh, really bang bang shoot 'em up and stuff. And and uh, Keith Giffen came on board. And he had all these ideas of them having, like, fighting with their guts hanging out and, like, body parts missing. And, like, I didn't want to draw a gore book. I wanted to draw an action book. So I asked Rob if I could leave. And uh, you did Berserkers from there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I did uh, Berserker. I did an issue Supreme. I did Berserkers. I did my own book, uh, Black Flag. But, yeah, Berserkers was more in line with the kind of stuff I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, Black Flag was uh, creator-owned, correct? That is right. Can you tell me a little bit about Black Flag? Black Flag is, um, the tagline would be, saving the earth one world at a time. And they were uh, an eclectic band of uh, unlikely people, a mercenary, uh, a rich toy executive, a magician, um, two kids, a purple gorilla. So it was just a lot of fun. I was drawing the things I wanted to draw. And then from there you did some work for Marvel, right? I did. I did. I worked for Marvel. I, uh, first thing I did over there was uh, fill in on, on Spider-Man. Then I did uh, a what-if issue, what if Captain America had been thought in the 70s, a Generation X annual, uh, five issues of Wolverine, two issues of Black Panther, and some other stuff I don't recall. Yeah. I, I see on your table you have the revised version of Bloodstrike Blood No. 1. Uh, how, how would you compare the two? Did you like the changes that were made to the revised one? I do. I mean, I, my buddy colored the first one, so I will always have love for him. But um, having Tom Mason get, do a recolor on the thing, revitalize it, it was like getting a brand new book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, are you still in with any of the extreme guys these days? Uh, you mean, am I in contact with them? Yeah, I mean, I talk to almost all of them. I mean, some of them more than others, like Brian Murray. The guy who did Supreme, he's, uh, I consider him a, a close friend and a mentor. I talk to Rob a couple times a month. I talk to uh, Byron, the guy who colored Bloodstrike. I talk to him often. Um, yeah, pretty much all the guys. I, I still, it's either at shows or on Facebook or, uh, you know, some of them, like, they're good, good friends, so we talk often. Uh, have you had a chance to see uh, Michelle Fifay's revival of Bloodstrike, uh, Bloodstrike Brutalist, that's coming out later this year? I'm a member of a Facebook group, and I, whatever, whenever he posts little things, uh, I see them, and I think it's really cool looking. It's got like a retro feel to it, so I like it a lot. It's an interesting concept, because apparently he's doing a zero issue that kind of sets up some of the material you worked on, and then another couple of issues that take off with some of the Keith Giffen material. Well, that's cool. I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the, uh, the plot of the book. So that's uh, actually pretty exciting. 
he's basically completing the series because they had done the uh, time jump to the 25th issue of Bloodstrike yeah. with the, the Cabot version, and they never quite made it back to there again. So he's basically finishing up the run. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I remember I, I worked with, I was inking Rob, I was doing finishes over him on um, that Bloodstrike 25 stuff, and it was it was pretty cool. I mean, I, again, I, I liked my first, you know, three issues in the direction we were going in. Um, so I would love to see how the gap got bridged. That would be really cool. And uh, do you, are you working on anything currently? Uh, I did a I did a web comic in 2014 that uh, was called The Grave, and it was on Instagram under um, The Grave by Dan Frega. and And I posted it one panel at a time every day of the of the year for 365 days. And uh, IDW has picked it up, and they're publishing it this fall. So that's that's what I got. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. What's that rattlesnake? Uh, that's somebody's texting me like crazy, so oh, I think okay. I'm going to follow up. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!